Hello and welcome. This is Carter Hansen, your host for Belle Epoque, the podcast name for a short period of the late 19th century, but really covers anything in history I want to talk about. I should really think of a more accurate name. This is the first episode of the first podcast that I have ever made, so this could either go really well or just as terrible as the Siege of Malta went for the Ottomans in 1565. A total disaster. Regardless, I've decided to jump on the podcasting bandwagon and give it a shot. I know that every high school student and college student and journalism nerd and history buff and basically everyone is starting their own podcast, but, heck, if everyone else is doing it, then I might as well. It's not like I have a ton of other time-consuming things going on in my life anyways. Be that as it may, what I hope to do with this podcast is essentially give myself a platform to project my gospel of history and politics and all else that just makes me think into the void that is the internet. Honestly, at least for the time being, these episodes aren't going to be released on any kind of schedule. But maybe if this is successful and I enjoy the process of making this episode, I'll pick up the pace in the perpetually ephemeral future. We'll see. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. I haven't even talked about what I, well, want to talk about. I could really start anywhere. The vastness and scope of history is almost all-consuming in and of itself. From Caesars to Kaisers, Magyars to Mongols, Zulus to Zoroastrians, the venerable and staggering tapestry of humanity stretches beyond possibility or imagination. Through generations of strife and triumph, cataclysmic devastation, and hard-earned endurance, Mankind has shaped their environment to suit their needs in a truly remarkable way. Yet those victories, though great in magnitude, are shepherded away as time passes, only to be replaced by distraught and suffering. This is what history recognizes and admires. The struggles between peoples, their glory and sacrifice, and the bitter and stunning perseverance of time, the persistent process of old wounds healing and new scars forming. This truth is critical. It provides an underlying narrative. It weaves the separate fibers together, revealing, in good time, that vast mosaic to us, the audience, the students of history. That is perhaps what attracts me so much to the past. The past is everything. It teaches us about ourselves and forces us to examine who we are and what we believe and why. Being a historian forces us to look at a battle and not just see the clash of arms, but the men and women behind the brutality to investigate the humanity in them, to find what could drive them to take up weapons and risk their lives in the service of a cause or a country or a falsifiable narrative thrust upon them, how that excess of emotion is controlled and focused by those at the top of the hierarchy. There is a staggering multitude of topics that I could cover, of the ability to literally go anywhere with this podcast. But what I've elected to focus on, at least for the present, is to start with the French Revolution and chronicle the subsequent century and a half, eventually ending with the Great War. I will go through the events of the 19th century, finding the causes of the First World War, and in the process, investigate the incomprehensible consequence of that era of history. I find World War I an extremely interesting topic to study, especially the forces behind the conflict, the actors who guided a continent, a globe by extension, to ruin the diverse elements that clashed, slaughtering an entire generation in the process. In 1914, the Tsar ruled Russia under his autocratic thumb, 
encouraging a feudal system which punished poverty and encouraged oligarchy. At the onset of war, grandchildren of Queen Victoria ruled three of the great powers of Europe in an almost medieval system of monarchical dominance. Before Germany marched through Belgium and France, embarking on the infamous Schlieffen Plan, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire invaded Serbia after the assassination of their apparently beloved Archduke, the European order of power ensured peace for its 482 million residents on the continent and expanded its influence around the world through a campaign of imperial hegemony. The fascinating mankind that endured before the world wars was different than the one after in almost all aspects of society, culture, and governance. I think of it in the same way that people who were born after 9-11, like me, will never be able to understand life without TSA security and understand a world where American culture emphasizes a sense of innocence or seclusion or an idea of American benign indifference towards the outside, real world. World War I was a turning point for the citizens of the world, really, in much the same way. Anyway, I'll go into that more at a much, much later date. What I want to do with this podcast, at least for the time being, is go back and really hammer down the incredibly important and formative 19th century, ending it not with the turn of the millennia, but with its real climax, the First World War. Starting with the Napoleonic era, and supplementally the French Revolution, I want to go through the subsequent ten decades identifying and exploring all of its intricacies and epic events, its colossal calamities and campaigns of subjugation, and its rapid development and stunning political phenomena. All of this will eventually build up to the First World War, proving its lack of inevitability, its surprising devastation of the old world, its incomprehensible impact on the course of human history. World War I was the defining moment of the modern age. It was the transition from the old world to the new. Understanding the Great War requires one to understand humanity before and after, and correspondingly, the factors that led to this shakeup of the status quo that had endured for a millennium, capitulating only with the conflict of 1914-18. to So enough of my incoherent rambling. Let's get started. As I briefly mentioned earlier, a political hierarchy of great powers maintained peace in Europe for much of the 19th and early 20th centuries. Indeed, the European continent had not experienced a major war since the Napoleonic era, which ended with Napoleon Bonaparte's final defeat at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. After being exiled to the island of Elba in 1814, the great powers, Austria, Prussia, Russia, France, and the United Kingdom, met in Vienna to draw up the future of the continent, in the process attempting to find a solution to the mess of nations, revolutionaries, and political squalor that had caused the death of some five million civilians and soldiers. The profusion of violence that ended at Vienna in 1814 began with the French Revolution in 1789. In the fallout from its deafening outpour of slaughter, when the revolution reached its peak, the extremely conservative French political establishment found itself without a head, literally and figuratively. The extraordinary turn of events that caused the revolution escorted the monarchy and its complementary feudal system out of the French Empire to be replaced by a rowdy mob of idealists and angry peasants, but mostly angry peasants. Now, it may seem like I'm going down a massive rabbit hole here, and maybe I am, but this podcast isn't going to just be about World War I, although it partially is. 
It's also about the entire era of history leading up to it. The French Revolution is the beginning of this story because it is an event that separates everything before it from everything after it, just like the First World War. Everything after the French Revolution, which naturally resulted from it, builds up over a century and a quarter to the Great War. What I'm saying is this podcast is essentially going to start with the French Revolution and end with World War I, telling the story of the events that unfolded in between. Anyway, the French Revolution. A topic that I guess I'll end up talking about for most, if not the entirety, of the remainder of this episode, was preceded by the meeting of the Estates Générales. Prior to 1789, the French social system was built around a kind of caste system of estates, which sorted citizens into one of three different groups. The first estate was the clergy, the second, the nobility, and the third, everybody else. This was the Ancien Régime, one of, if not the most, conservative and royalist societal structures of Europe at the time. Sylvia Neely writes in A Concise History of the French Revolution, One historian of the Ancien Régime has likened the governmental structure of France to a large palace to which rooms and wings were added over the years without any overall plan. Some institutions dated back to the Middle Ages, others were more modern, but none were ever destroyed. Obsolete institutions were not eliminated, in part because tradition was an essential element of the Ancien Régime. The meeting of the Estates Générales was a congress of sorts, where each estate sent representatives to argue for their constituency. The parliament was called by the king in times of crisis, and the delegates were to come up with, and agree upon, solutions for this critical problem, to be presented back to the king. Despite the fact that 95% of the French population was under the third estate, they were only represented by 610 of the 1,201 members of the Estates Générales. King Louis XVI ordered the formation of the Estates Générales in 1789 to deal with the rapidly deteriorating financial situation. This was a result of the massive expenditures of the French government during the Seven Years' War and the American Revolution part of France's ongoing rivalry with the United Kingdom. On the 5th of May, 1789, Jacques Necker opened the Estates Générales, the first convention of its kind since 1614. The popular Necker had been the financial minister of France from 1777 to 1781, where he had effected some liberal reforms in favor of making the tax system slightly more equal, making the government's budget and debt available for the public to see in the Compte rendu au roi. This raised public interest and awareness of the monarchy's precarious financial situation, even though Nicker had made up most of the facts in the Compte rendu so as to keep the populace somewhat placated. At the Estates Générales, Nicker was intended to be a somewhat unifying force, appealing to all three estates. However, this failed dramatically when his speech to open the Estates Générales turned from what many expected to be a plan to reform the political and economic structure of the nation to a mundane and monotonous lesson on financial data. This proved to only foreshadow the rest of the meeting. There was no unity to be found. The convention, initiated to resolve the fiscal issues facing France, quickly devolved into squabbles between the estates, arguing over how the estates Générale should be run. When it was announced that the voting would not be done by head, and instead by order, meaning that each estate had an equal vote, again despite the fact that 95% of France was in the third estate, a month of stalemate occurred. The third estate, 
after offering compromise and invitations to the other two estates, decided to go it alone, and in early June 1789, resolved to form the National Assembly, separate from the other two estates and without the king's approval. It just so happened that, although King Louis had stayed out of the business of the Estates General throughout all of May and early June, Necker had finally convinced the king to interfere into what was fast becoming a crisis itself, and host a royal session on June 23rd. This meant that the hall where the third estate usually met was closed on the morning of June 20th in preparation. Of course, no one had thought to tell the third estate this, causing them to react in fear and anger, and to find somewhere else to meet in an act of defiance against the king, who they assumed had locked them out of their meeting hall. Neely writes, In a fever of suspicion, the delegates of the third estate, now calling themselves the National Assembly, met in an indoor tennis court and vowed to stay at their posts, quote, until the constitution of the kingdom is established and consolidated upon firm foundations, end quote. The tennis court oath made attempts at compromise even less likely to succeed. With the third estate firmly detached from the other two estates, the king decided to proceed with a scheduled royal session, delivering a speech that attempted to satisfy both factions of the estates general, the nobility and clergy, and the third estate, through compromise, but effectively failed to appeal to either, the first two estates seeing it as having too many concessions, and the third viewing it as being threatening and authoritative. The third estate didn't return. In the subsequent days, some members of the first and second estates broke ranks with their peers and joined the National Assembly against the king's command. Though the numbers of the National Assembly swelled, the king escalated the growing rift, angered by the open defiance many in the assembly were showing towards him by forming a congress that he had not authorized or allowed to exist. The king brought troops to Paris, threatening the assembly that was now in a dire predicament. On the night of July 11th, King Louis dismissed the popular Necker and three other ministers, unintentionally bringing in a new force, one that had up until now not entered the picture, the people of Paris. Fearing the king was preparing to attack the National Assembly, now rechristened the National Constituent Assembly, by increasing the military presence in Paris and removing those elements of the government empathetic to their cause, on July 12th, the civilians of the city rioted against the monarchy. They took aim at the Bastille, a symbol of the Ancien Regime's power and a cache of weapons and ammunition, launching an assault on the prison. The Bastille fell, the governor of the prison's head stuck on a pole and paraded through the streets of Paris. Soon what started as a dispute between different elements of His Majesty's government evolved into the famous revolution that it is known as today. The riots spread. The National Constituent Assembly became more and more liberal, and civil war began to sweep through the Kingdom of France. However, the revolution was without a true leader. A select few authorities were able to wrangle the expanding mob to some extent but only to focus their energy on slaughtering one nobleman after the next. George Washington, watching from across the sea, noted this sentiment in a letter in October 1789, quote, To forbear running from one extreme to another is no easy matter, and should this be the case, rocks and shelves, not visible at present, may wreck the vessel and give a higher tone to despotism than the one which existed before. Without a leader, the revolution would sputter and die, retreating to the extreme before eventually succumbing to its divided interests. 
This was already happening by the early 1790s. The reign of terror had become massacring its way through the bourgeoisie of France, guillotining many a lord, lady, and clergyman without a clearly defined aim or purpose for the bloodshed. The situation was dire in France by the early 1790s. The revolutionaries were disorganized, infighting and crisis afflicting their armies, and as a result of the genocide of the French aristocracy, were without competent generals to lead their passionate rabble. In addition, the revolution may have been successful in Paris, but the monarchists were waging a bloody civil war against the new regime that had taken control of the heart of the nation. In 1792, Prussia and Austria marched on Paris, hoping to put an end to the rebellion in one fell swoop. They met the revolutionary army at the Battle of Valmy, where French generals Kellermann and Dumouriez headed off against the Prussian Duke of Brunswick. The French revolutionaries commanded about 50,000 men, about half being well-trained troops of the old royalist army. They were supplemented by inexperienced, albeit enthusiastic, volunteer battalions. They faced the Prussian force of 80,000, many of whom were experienced Prussian and Austrian soldiers, joined by a force of Hessians and French royalists. The battle was a crushing triumph for the revolution. The Prussians were routed and forced to flee back to Germany. This was an essential victory for the revolution. It proved that it could face an army from a major power and defeat it. The victory also was important in that it spread the flames of revolution throughout the whole of Europe. It projected the message that its ideas were powerful and inspiring and a genuine guideline for the formation of government. In the wake of its triumph, the dysfunctional administration of the revolution attained the political capital necessary to give itself a new name, the French Republic. That's all I have for this episode. We'll continue with the revolution next time. I hope by the end of the next episode, we'll start talking about a certain Corsican captain of artillery, and he guess who. But I'll see how much informative yet engaging commentary I end up being able to provide on the rest of the French Revolution before we get to other topics. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of Belle Epoque with Carter Hansen.